0: I say this all the time, you guys, but I really am super excited about this conversation. <laughs> we, as purebred dog enthusiasts, encounter a lot of pushback from the world, and particularly those of us who have brachycephalic breeds run into this a lot. And so I have with us today Eddie Zook, who's the OFA cheerleader for the boaz project that we're going to talk about and i also have uh, dr kathleen smiler who's the representative from the pug dog club of america and we are going to talk about the brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome <laughs> testing process that was developed at the university of cambridge in england pure dog talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet companion loves helping pets get the care they need. That's why they're excited to announce that they've officially paid out over $2 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars in veterinary claims. That's 2 billion reasons for more tail wags and treats. That's 730,000 pets that got the care they needed. Trupanion would like to thank all of the owners and breeders who've trusted them over the last 22 years. If you're part of the Trupanion Breeder Support Program, don't forget to register your upcoming litters for their go home day offers, That way you can send them home protected by Trupanion's world-class coverage. If you're not part of the program yet, what what what? It's completely free to join and lets you send your litters home with an offer for a full Trupanion insurance policy that waives the waiting periods. To learn more and to sign up, just visit my partner page at puredogtalk.com. I just think this is such an amazing project. So thank you guys for coming and talking to us about this. Thank you, Laura. Excellent. So Eddie, I'm going to start with you because I know you have been the moving force behind, is it licensing? Is that what you did? The OFA has licensed this program, is that correct?
1: That is correct.
0: So talk to us about how you did that and why you did that, because I feel like this is an important part of that story.
1: So the OFA has been interested in working with the issues that surround BOAS, and of course BOAS stands for the Brachycephalic Obstructive Airway Syndrome. And we've been interested in working with this particular These entity and assisting brachycephalic breeders in not only producing and breeding healthier dogs, but also trying to combat and present sort of a positive PR narrative against all the pushback that these breeds are getting, that they're all unhealthy and none of them can breathe and so forth. And unquestionably, there are definitely health issues in these breeds, but to suggest that all of them have breathing difficulties and all of them are unhealthy is simply not the case. So we've been looking at various different tools. What could we do to assist these breeders? So several years ago, we developed within the OFA a new database for tracheal hypoplasia. That's been implemented. That's utilized pretty widely by lots of bulldog breeders, lots of Frenchie breeders, some Boston Terrier breeders, et cetera. We looked for a while at trying to develop a way of Seeing if we could have like a Mary's database and try and evaluate whether the dogs had nice wide open nostrils or whether there was any stenosis, we had a difficult time in trying to develop any consistency in the measuring. So we had a lot of false starts and fails in that. So that kind of got sidelined. But the whole time we were aware of the efforts that were going on in the UK, specifically at the University of Cambridge and one of the researchers there by the name of Dr. Jane Ladlow. And Dr. Ladlow worked through this issue for quite a bit of time, and the result of her efforts was what they called the respiratory function grading scheme. So they had that implemented in the UK, and it was just starting to get rolling right at the advent when COVID hit. And we entered into some discussions with Dr. Ladlow, figuring it didn't make sense. You know, We were doing a lot of things that we were trying to do, but we weren't running into a lot of success with the exception of the tracheal hypoplasia database which is based upon a radiograph, by the way. Mm. So in our discussions with her, we decided it didn't really make sense for us to reinvent the wheel. She had already put so much work into this and they developed this exam protocol. And it seemed like this would be something that would fit quite nicely here in North America as well. So in those early discussions, we thought we were gonna get rolling and then you know, COVID hit and that sort of sidelined everything. Right. The Kennel Club in the UK had a Rackathlethalic health conference scheduled I believe that was in early 2020, then that got postponed, it got rescheduled, then canceled. Right. So again, you know, the bottom line is all this, the progress got derailed for quite some time. Mm. But about a year and a half ago, we were sort of able to resurrect this and we identified two veterinarians here in the U.S. that were going to be our point, our subject matter experts and our primary point of contact to work with Dr. Ladlow. Now, over in the uk in order to be one of the approved examiners they have to specifically go through training right by the folks at the university of cambridge and again because of some residual COVID issues and so forth and because of cost as well we knew that it probably wasn't going to be terribly effective for us to send to sponsor a whole bunch of vets to go travel over to cambridge and undergo this testing right so we did identify two veterinarians and they became our subject matter experts and primary points of contact and they worked directly with Dr. Ladlow through a long series of discussions, through some video training, et cetera. And they became our initial approved examiners. So again, you've got an exam protocol and a grading scheme already developed and in the implementation process in the UK. So we wanted to take full advantage of that. The University of Cambridge, in turn, was working with the Kennel Club. And whenever I say mm-hmm. the Kennel Club, I'm referring to not our AKC here, right. but the Kennel Club is how the Brits refer to their Kennel Club over in the UK. Right. So the Kennel Club widely also embraced this and began to roll it out. And they developed a licensing program because what they basically figured is there are going to be lots of countries besides just the United States mm-hmm. interested in using the same exam protocol. So they developed a licensing program where they could allow other countries to use the same grading scheme. The guts of that license is not that we have to pay any kind of a license fee or that we're bound by any kind of intellectual property issues. It's more along the lines of that we agree to use the same exam protocol, the same grading matrix. And more importantly, we agree to share all these results with this international group of collaborators and share all those results into a centralized database so that you know more research can be made and more effective breeding decisions can be done. So while we here in the U.S. and Canada will be collecting all this information and including it in the OFA database, we'll also be feeding it back to the University of Cambridge and the Kennel Club, who will also be collecting results from the U.K. and from all the other countries in the United Kingdom, but as well as all the countries in mainland Europe who are also participating in the licensing program.
0: I just think this is so important. And Kathleen, I'd really love to have you speak a little bit from the Pug Dog Club of America in terms of why and how you became involved. I know also the French Bulldog Club of America and the Bulldog Club of America, right, are all participating in this venture here in the U.S.
2: Well, in my capacity on the health committee of the club, I try to monitor pug health all over the world and keep track of testing in other countries. And so I interacted with the British people for a while. And so we were well aware of what was starting with those tests. And actually the show pugs were doing quite well. You know, I believe the only ones to take the test. And so then I wrote Eddie and I said, boy, could we do this here? And he said, well, we're going to. And the more we told our club members about it, the more excited they got because the three main problems for pugs are PDE and BOAS and the Pug Myelopathy. So the club was very anxious that we participate. And just to be able to have a good handle on it, I went to the two early meetings in St. Louis and then to Portland to try to help.
1: I love that. While the OFA basically had all this on our radar and we were considering all this, we were really pushed forward in the effort in terms of prioritizing a little more By those three parent clubs. All three parent clubs directly contacted the OFA, meaning the Bulldog Club of America, the French Bulldog Club of America, and the Pug Dog Club of America. All three contacted us and asked us to proactively pursue. The implementation of this program here in North America. And whenever I say sort of U.S., I need to mention and be clear, sometimes I use the U.S. and North America interchangeably. That's kind of important. And if I make a mistake on my part, I always mean to say North America because the Canadians have been very involved. The Canadian Kennel Club has been very involved in this effort. So basically, this is a joint thing. All the efforts that we're doing are for U.S. dog owners as well as Canadian.
0: So, I think the outreach, the AVMA has a post about this. I mean, how exciting is that, right? That we can bring positive brachycephalic news from the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, is saying nice things about brachycephalic dogs. I love this. This makes me happy. So, (laughs) Eddie and Kathleen, when do you guys jump in? How are we doing the training with the veterinarians? I understand this is very much a hands-on. And you mentioned, Eddie, that you started working with Dr. Ludlow. How are the training processes going here in the U.S. and North America?
1: Yeah, so I'll share a little bit about that because that is important. Because out of the starting gate, there's nothing that's that specific or requires in-depth training. So essentially, any vet should be able to conduct these exams. However, we're very focused on trying to limit it. And the thought process behind that is that we want to make sure that there is solid consistency and reliability both intra and inter veterinarian Mm -hmm. we want to be pretty comfortable and assured that if a veterinarian in florida examines a particular dog on a day and gives it a grade zero or grade one we want to feel assured that if that same dog traveled and had an exam done by a different examiner in washington state as far away as you could get that that examiner in washington state would also assign the same grade And in order to do that, we wanted to make sure that these vets underwent some level of training to ensure that they fully understood that exam protocol, the background on how that protocol was developed, as well as the grading matrix. So we started out with those two initial veterinarians that we had identified that are each veterinary surgeons and that had a specific interest in respiratory issues and in soft tissue surgery with regards to correcting respiratory issues. So those two vets were Dr. Kathleen Hamm at the University of Florida and Dr. Kelly Thyman at Texas A&M. They worked closely with Dr. Ladlow at the University of Cambridge to the point where Dr. Ladlow felt more than assured that these two vets would be qualified to lead the effort here in the U.S. What we're doing going forward is sort of a pyramid scheme, if you will. So we had right. those two yeah. initial vets, right, mm-hmm. that got approved really by Dr. Ladlow. So the OFA didn't make that initial assessment that was done by Cambridge. So we started out with those two and we went through two pilot events last year. And at those two pilot events, we had two additional veterinarians that ended and participated and under the guidance and basically shadowing under doctors Ham and Thiemann, They then became approved examiners. So we went into this Portland event, which was our first official screening event, with four approved examiners. The two additional veterinarians that we trained were Dr. Elizabeth Rosansky from Tufts and Dr. Kerry Stefaniak, who is an emergency practitioner in Wisconsin. And so we attended that Portland event specifically with all four of our approved veterinarians, as well as we then invited three additional veterinarians to shadow and mentor under those four and leave that event as trained examiners. So after Portland, we added Dr. Linnell Johnson, who's on faculty at UC Davis and again has a very specific interest in respiratory issues. We added Dr. Allison Collier from the Ontario Veterinary College in Guelph, Canada. And she's sort of taking the lead working directly with the Canadian Kennel Club on the further rollout of the program north of the border. And finally, we had Dr. Alan Frank, who's a practitioner in Maryland, but that has owned Bulldogs, has shown Bulldogs, is a member of the Bulldog Club of America, and will be sort of taking the lead in sort of that mid-Atlantic region. So we now have seven approved examiners And we intend to slowly add more and increase that pool, but we always want to maintain some level of control and keep it fairly small so that we can ensure that they can be in regular contact with each other and that they can have a true sort of peer collegial relationship as this program rolls out a little further again so that we can maintain consistency And that as issues arise, that they can discuss them and learn from each other. So we left those two initial pilot events last year feeling pretty secure about things. But there's no question that things with more dogs, we had a lot more dogs to work with in Portland, that there were some learning experiences that happened out of that. And we want to make sure that it's a group that's small enough that where they all know each other and have a good working relationship that as additional learning curves come to light that they can all benefit from that.
0: Well, and Kathleen, talk about, I mean, this is designed to be an objective test, but human, right? People. So talk to us about what your observations, having now attended these three different events, about how you felt that went for the dogs and for the veterinarians that were working.
2: I think the veterinarians were extremely enthusiastic. Cat Ham and I are good friends. She's my own dog's doctor. And they were patient. They were excited. They had put together a lot of the software for the recording on their own, I think. And they interacted beautifully and there were never any serious disputes. And I think the participants were quite pleased too. You know, I told you the first one was in that snowstorm. Right. We saw the consistency. Eddie said there's a couple parts of this that a consistent person has to do them. But I think... I went and sat in the meet the breeds box with the pug people after the in Portland and everybody was quite satisfied and they were getting their scores and they were coming back and waving their papers and stuff. So they were very enthusiastic, you know, about having taken the test and passed it or not passed it. There were a few that didn't, but no one really complained other than like a lady wanted to be in the exam room and another lady didn't. But I think our club in general was very satisfied. And we've done a lot of publicity to our own members, encouraging Mm -hmm. them to do this. In our Mm -hmm. Facebook page, there's been something, Brenda's put out something almost every week. And so they had more than enough information to be encouraged to come.
0: Good. And they were comfortable with the test's results and how it was conducted. So that made them want to encourage more people. I'd say across the board, the pub people were. Excellent. Okay. So the big reveal now, Eddie, do we have numbers? How did that go in Portland? Can we talk about that? Is that still secret? No, it's not a secret <laughs> at all.
1: So we examined 54 dogs. We actually did 60, but we had a couple breeds that weren't on the like official breed participant list yet. Okay. So we had 54 between Bulldogs, Frenchies, and Pugs. And we also had a couple Bostons and Peaks. And because there nice. are also Brachycephalic breeds, we wanted to go ahead and do those because the owners volunteered. And we felt that that would give us sort of a baseline going forward because the intent would be at some point in time in the future to add additional Brachycephalic breeds as appropriate. But of those 54 dogs that we did, we had overwhelmingly pretty good results. So we had 10 grade zeroes. So the grade zeros are basically, everything was good. These dogs were good breathers. They had nice wide open nostrils. There were no sounds of turbulence or anything during the auscultation. So everything was looking pretty good. We had 18 grade ones, which is also good. means that in general, nothing could be heard without a stethoscope. And you could only hear some minor issues with the stethoscope. But the dogs are basically still found to be clinically unaffected by Boaz. We did have 25 grade twos and we had one lone grade three.
0: That's actually really good. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Yeah.
1: And I think that goes to prove the point that part of this is about that PR narrative that not all bulldogs suffer breathing difficulties. Not all Frenchies suffer breathing difficulties and not all pugs do either. That there's a large hole in all three of those breeds where there are good, healthy dogs that breathe fine, that don't show signs of exercise intolerance. And we can work with those dogs and breed them and hopefully breed lots of future generations of good, healthy Frenchies, pugs, and bulldogs.
0: Right. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. Pure Dog Talk patrons support the work we do here by contributing to our crowdsourcing campaign. In return for the generosity that keeps the MP3s rolling, patrons get direct access, rare opportunities, and tons of perks. And I tell you what, 23 is looking to be a busy year. We have three patrons' retreats. Okay, so this is the direct access and tons of perks. Three patrons' retreats planned throughout the year. These festive get-togethers combine learning, good food, new friends, and a dog show, right? I'll be there, leading handling courses, breeding courses, and some thought-provoking conversations along the way. Join our patrons now so you can be part of the best community in dogs. Visit www.puredogtalk.com backslash patron for details. So again, and Kathleen, I'll send this to you. The goals for the club is to not just show that PDCA members' dogs are healthy, but to help make more healthy dogs. Am I right?
2: Well, right. And they were talking about scheduling the test at the national specialty for the three breeds, and the Pug people are set up to do it in October. I don't know if you're going to do any more all breeds, because that was kind of successful, you know, to get the three breakey breeds. Actually, you get more for your travel club. Mm -hmm. More bang for your buck. Exactly. If you don't
1: mind, Laura, I think I want to do two things. I want to do a real quick description of what this exam entails because we haven't really discussed that. I was just headed that direction. And then we'll also jump in and talk about future clinics and what are sort of where we're thinking in terms of where this is going to go. So in terms of the exam itself, it's completely non-invasive and it should be a non stressful experience for the dog. There are basically four steps involved. So the first step is basically just a short health survey that the owner is going to do regarding the dog's breathing history. Are there any negative things that have been observed? Does the dog snore? Does it make sounds? Does it have regurgitation issues after it eats and so forth? Just some a little bit of history for the veterinarians before they actually begin the exam process. Then the dog will have a brief physical exam Again, the dog should be nice and calm. It should be in an area where the veterinarians are going to be able to hear clearly because the exam is going to be based upon auscultation. So the examiner is going to take a stethoscope and they're going to position it gently on the side of the neck over the larynx and listen for any sounds. And this is going to establish a baseline that they can then compare to the post-exercise auscultation. So following that baseline exam, they'll make certain assessments after that. There's going to be a short exercise test. That sounds a little daunting, but it shouldn't be anything that bad. So it's a short exercise test, and that consists of what we call a brisk three-minute walk. It's timed, and the exercise test is designed to expose any kind of clinical signs of the disease in an otherwise calm or asymptomatic dog. We are not there to stress the dog out to the point where we're assessing cardiovascular fitness or anything like that. It's purely to get that respiratory system up and working. OK, so the brisk three minute walk, it's timed. And we do have a goal where that dog should hopefully be walking approximately three to four miles per hour. So that's about a 15 okay. minute mile or a 20 minute mile. So it's not like a casual walk in the park, but a risk walk.
0: The speed that those dogs would go around the ring. Realistic. Yeah. I mean,
1: pretty close. Pretty close. I think you would think of it as a little maybe fast for a bulldog in the ring, but we certainly do see Frenchies trucking around the ring at this Mm -hmm. pace Mm -hmm. and definitely pugs. I mean, we see lots of Mm -hmm. pugs that just get up and go. Trust me, I showed a lot of them. (laughs)
0: They can zoom when they
1: want to. Speed's not daunting for them at all. And then after the exercise, immediately afterwards, we're going to repeat the auscultation. So they come back into the exam area, same exact process. Depthoscope placed over the larynx on the side of the neck and listen for sounds, listen for turbulence, listen for stridor noises, stridor noises, if there are any. And then based upon that auscultation, that is the one that's going to lead to the actual grade. Even though there are some thoughts that this is sort of subjective, it's really not that subjective. I mean, post-exercise, you're going to do the auscultation and you're going to either hear things Well, you're not going to hear things. And then based upon that, there's a very specific matrix that if this, then that, right? So if you are not hearing things, then it's going to be probably a zero. If you're hearing some minor things, then it's probably going to be in that one range. And if you're hearing specific types of sounds that are very audible on the stethoscope and even without the stethoscope, then that dog is probably going to grade as a two or three. So that's the exam process. Again, it should be non-stressful on the dog. It's non-invasive. If the dog does begin to show any kind of signs of exercise intolerance, heat intolerance, any kind of stress at all, we're ready to shut it down. The last thing that we want to do is have a bad experience for the dog. And I did mention heat intolerance, so it's also very important to point out that these exams have to be done indoors in a climate controlled environment we did do one of the pilots last year outdoors but it was a really brisk day in the 50s so none of the dogs were stressed by the heat in any way but in terms of going forward we do intend to make that sort of an exam requirement that it is done indoors in a climate controlled environment you know there's probably some outdoor environments that would be fine but we don't want to give those owners a reason to complain if it didn't go their way right
0: Everything level, everything level.
1: level So (laughs) it is going to be required that they are indoors in a climate controlled environment. The next topic that we're going to touch on that Dr. Smiler mentioned and then you were leading into is the thought process on future clinics. Yes. So we feel that these are probably going to go a couple different ways there's going to be a point in time where the OFA is going to have to step aside and we're not going to get in the business of scheduling these and sponsoring them and administering them indefinitely all over the country. But we do feel that we're probably going to do probably two or three more of these this year and try and have them in geographically dispersed areas so that we can get people from different parts of the country able to participate. And we will use those opportunities to hopefully train a few more approved assessors And we will do those using, obviously, the seven approved examiners that we have to date. So that's one flavor of exam that will probably happen again. We'd like to target maybe three of those this year happening at all breed events, whether it's indoors, climate controlled, in an area where we would have large entries of all three breeds to draw from, and probably in an area that's in close proximity to one of our existing examiners to help facilitate their ability to schedule and attend.
0: Sure. I love this pyramid concept of training the vets. Are you going to keep trying to do that this year as you're scheduling these around?
1: Yeah. So it's a very slow rollout. So all three of those events, if we can get them scheduled, the ones I sort of alluded to just now, the intent would be at all three of those to try and get at least one new examiner trained at all three of those or four of those, however many we do, knowing that one of our primary, that initial core group, that one of those four would be there, to conduct the training, because what we don't want to do as we work our way down this pyramid is we want to keep the training component up at that top level of those four guys initially. So we don't want to go like three levels down and have the level three guys be training level fours and level fours train level five and build it that way. We want to keep more consistency by having that initial core group do preponderance of the training. So we're looking at hopefully three or four more all breed events this year where we can draw upon all three breeds. Then the next flavor of a clinic that would happen is at all three of those breeds national specialty events. So the Bulldog Club, the Pug Dog Club, and the French Bulldog Club, all three have expressed an interest in having one of these clinics available at their specialties this fall. We've identified what the dates are. We've identified what the locations are. And I feel 95% confident that we will be able to work with those three national specialties and making sure that we've got at least one day of clinics available at their events. Between the seven examiners that we have that are approved now, All of them have expressed uh, agreement that it's important to attend the national specialties. And between of the seven of them, I'm pretty sure that we'll be able to make sure that we can find somebody that can work it into their calendar and their schedule. And then finally, what we will do is basically, we don't have it quite ready, but we will present basically a guideline document that we would give to all three parent clubs that they can filter down and give to their regional specialty clubs for any of those clubs that are interested in hosting one of these events so we want to get to the point where the individual specialty clubs all around the country are going to become the primary sources Of these clinics. So, you know, let's say hypothetically, I don't know if there is one, but the Pug Dog Club in St. Louis, they're holding their specialty event. They want to hold one of these clinics. We will assist them in administrative work. We'll assist them in finding one of the approved veterinarians that can work, but that'll be basically their event, their function, their clinic, much like any Aubrey Club or specialty club routinely dog shows all around the country every weekend is hosting right. eye exam clinics, cardiac clinics, et cetera. Yeah. So we would want to make this basically get to the point where it becomes almost a norm for many of these mm-hmm. brachycephalic breeds if they're having a health testing clinic to offer this up as one of the options that are available.
0: Excellent. And Kathleen, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but speak to the Pug Dog Club of America as the representative of who's on the call here today your goals going forward for the breed and for this testing system?
2: Well, we're certainly very sensitive to the criticism that's been directed toward brachycephalic breeds. I think we're fortunate we're in the U.S. where it isn't a regulated activity, nor has the Veterinary Association attacked the breeds as they did in Europe. We're going to make this information available to our members and highly encourage them. I wrote a couple articles already. I'd like to interview a couple of the people whose dogs were tested, you know, kind of a testimonial to encourage people that it was not a problem. And then eventually for our puppy buyers, you know, I'd love to educate the puppy buyers on what to ask for. And then if they get results from the breeder, take the results to the veterinarian, their veterinarian, and discuss them. And if the veterinarian not familiar with the testing of purebred dogs, he should do a little homework. So I think it'll be very positive across the board and hopefully we'll breed healthier pugs. Yeah. Well, and I think that
0: more than anything else that we have reasonably healthy pugs from what the system is showing us already And we can get a notch higher and we can reach out to, in all three of these breeds, and hopefully all of the brachycephalic breeds, this would be my joy, that we could reach beyond our club members and get out to people who are breeding at not quite as high a level and be able to bring up the quality.
2: A lot of puppies that are produced by kennels never intend to show their dogs. And if we can reach to them, and especially the public being aware of what a good puppy is, I think that would be really important. That would be amazing.
0: Eddie, in closing, as we're finishing up here, talk to us a little bit. You mentioned just briefly earlier Peaks and Bostons and some of the other brachycephalic breeds that we could extend this to, that it starts with the core of the French Bulldogs and the Pugs and the Bulldogs. And do you see that in like a five year span? Is that kind of where you're looking at that?
1: Yeah. So you need to remember that we're licensing this. So this is a Mm -hmm. worldwide effort, not just us independently. So Mm -hmm. it's not like the OFA can just unilaterally make the decision. Oh, we're just going to include Boston's in our program here. Okay. And so part of the rationale for including those Boston's in those peaks at the Portland event is so that we could have some baseline data to share back with the University of Cambridge and as okay. they begin to work with Boston Terriers and Pekingese and draw additional data from all over the world and the participating countries, mm-hmm. they can make the assessment. Are there any things that make these breeds a little bit unique in the issues that we're hearing in their breathing or make them unique in their confirmation, which means that we should assess them slightly differently? So the starting position is, okay, here's basically in all these breeds what we're looking for. Is it fair to treat them with the same grading matrix? And that's why we wanted to include the Bostons and the Peaks, but we didn't. And we did assign them a grade, but that Mm -hmm. grade was assigned based upon the existing matrix. Mm -hmm. And as additional data is collected, that would allow Cambridge to determine, are there any things that make these dogs outliers? that they should be treated or examined somewhat differently. So, you know, it wouldn't be fair for me to comment, is that a three-year goal, a five-year goal, et cetera? That would be a Cambridge goal, depending upon the amount of data that they're able to collect.
2: They've started some genetics work sponsored by the Kennel Club in England, which will be interesting. And she's trying to separate the breeds a bit in what anatomically is the cause of the brachycephalic obstruction. And then in some cases, two dogs will look exactly alike, and one is brachycephalic and the other isn't. And they're trying to evaluate what part of the dog needs to be, hopefully, modified in future.
0: Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And Eddie, thank you for the clarification. I did not understand that it was from the Kennel Club, from the UK Cambridge people, that it was narrowed to just these three breeds and not the entire galaxy of brachycephalic breeds. So that is super interesting information.
1: You know, that's based upon all their early research that they were able to do. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know some of the terminology of some of this very specific equipment, but Dr. Ladlong and Cambridge, they actually developed another tool, which would probably be a little more specific in its findings, but it involved basically a air-controlled chamber where the dog was placed
0: in. I remember reading something about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And of course, that would not be a very economically efficient tool to try and roll out universally all over the world to do these dogs. So what they did is they used those baseline scores and then did develop this exam protocol and compared on all the same dogs in both so that they were then able to have sort of a matrix that if the dog scored this way in the chamber and after exercise, you heard the following things, this is how they match up. And that's, again, one of the things that adds to the objectivity. of this particular exam protocol is the tie back to the chamber data.
0: Okay. That is super fascinating. All right. Well, thank you both so incredibly much. I have been following this with absolute fascination and really wanted to make it to Portland. And by the time I had a chance, I couldn't get there. So (laughs) I'm sorry to have missed it, but I am thrilled to hear that it is going to continue through the course of the year. And listeners, Find one, get your dogs. Let's get some dogs in this program. I think this is amazing. So thank you both very, very much. Thanks for having us, Laura. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, Give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love pure dog talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on pure dog talk.